Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by David French. Uh, He is a senior editor at The Dispatch. He is a columnist for The Atlantic, um, and he is very prolific on all sorts of subjects, legal, religious, and everything else. And today- Too many. (laughs) And today we have brought him here to talk about uh, student loan debt. So welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. Yes, thank you, David. And and as our listeners know, our podcast is, is dedicated to this idea that there's sometimes these ideas that are put out in the world that are just great for kids, you know, that they're just going to do wonderful things. And and President Biden, as you know, for more than a year has been being pressured to put forth one of these great ideas. Let's relieve student debt, crushing kids' dreams and hopes. And why don't we just make it all disappear? And so, David, is this idea of relieving student debt, is this going to help kids? So why don't you first step back, describe what has been proposed and why it is unlikely to actually help the people intended for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's important to say proposed because as we're seeing as time goes by, the proposal is evolving, shall we say, and it's evolving in some interesting ways to try to avoid legal challenges. So um, that'll be worth talking about a bit. But the basics of it is that it's a limited debt relief program, 10,000 per person, 20,000 per household at with income caps, relatively high income caps. It's very limited in that extent, although to say limited, it's still going to wipe out a lot of student debt. I believe the total price tag is around $420 billion, which even in our incredibly inflated budgetary world is still an <laughs> it's still real money. money. That's and, that, and, and, and that's actually at the floor, right? A couple of estimates have come out at 600 million, you know, I mean, 600 billion, you know, depending on what level of, of people actually apply. Right. Uh, in terms of eligibility. Right, right. So the, I think the important factors about the student debt relief are, so you've got an amount, um, you've got a nearly universal application. And then what you're, there are several aspects of this that I think we can talk about sort of the, the legal side and then the policy side. And just sort of on the policy side, I think what needs to be made really clear to people is this is a giant financial relief that is given to one of America's most advantaged populations. So if you're going to look at the unemployment rate of people with college degrees versus those without, even those with some college versus those without, unemployment rate is lower. If you're going to talk talk median wages of people with college degrees versus those without, Median wages are are higher for those with college degrees. If you're going to talk about lifetime earnings of people with college degrees, lifetime earnings are much higher. So when you're talking about people with college degrees, and even to to a lesser extent, but still a meaningful extent, people with some college but no no degree, you're talking about the among the most economically advantaged people in this entire country. And this country is the wealthiest country in the world. So you're talking about one of the most economically advantaged classes of people in the wealthiest country in the world is receiving a giant outlay of benefit. The other thing about this is this giant outlay of benefit 
is being handed out without any underlying reform of the elements that have made colleges more expensive. Correct. And so so you're doing nothing to change the underlying arc of educational inflation. Uh, at the same time, you're dramatically benefiting a group of people who are least in need of government help in the United States. And so you're putting no uh, barrier to increase college costs. To the contrary, uh, if people have an expectation that loans are to be forgiven uh, periodically, then you're actually taking one of the few breaks off of college costs. You're incentivizing cost increases. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's such an important point. So, I mean, you, you're going to have this you could have this big re uh, relief package and then kids who are starting school next fall will do the exact same thing that all of those kids who are under this crushing debt did, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And we're not doing anything to say, hey, this debt is so crushing. Maybe we shouldn't be, you know, putting students under this pressure in the first place. Right, exactly. And so. You know, this is basically a, a basic reality is if you don't think you're going to have to pay for something, you're not cost conscious. Right. And so if you think that all or a portion of your student debt is going to be wiped out, you're going to be less cost conscious on the front end, which, of course, incentivizes the, the provider of the service, in this case, the college education, to be less price conscious. If the consumer is less cost conscious then the the provider is going to be has incentives to be less price conscious. And then if it all gets sort of punted to this undifferentiated mass of taxpayers, then, you know, the, the price and cost consciousness starts to disappear almost entirely. Uh, so I think it, it in this sense of does an individual who owes $9,000 get a benefit for not owing the $9,000? Sure. Is this going to be good for the United States of America or for future generations of college students who are applying to a less a less price conscious educational environment? No, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. It's going to make those things worse. And what's the message to the young person who worked through college, who who figured out a way to manage their financial needs while pursuing their academic aspirations? Who chose a less elite school? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's something that if you you raise that on if you raise that on Twitter as I, as I did, you're going to get gang tackled by all of these people who are going to say, "Well, I worked my way through college and I don't resent the loan payoff." Fine, I get it that people have individuals have different reactions to this, and there are a lot of people who work their way through school and have no debt who don't resent it. But at the same time, it is completely legitimate for millions of people to reach a different conclusion especially, especially if you're in that category of person who said, rather than going, say, to an elite private college that I got into, like, say, a Rhodes College in, in Tennessee and near, you know, Memphis, where close to where I live, you went to MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, and you and you paid a lot less for college and but you didn't have the college experience that you dreamed about. There's a tangible uh, sacrifice there. Now, a lot of us would say, that's a sacrifice that's really actually quite instructive about life. That's a that's a valuable learning experience to sacrifice to emerge from college with little or no debt um, and that there's some real value there. But the message sent by the debt relief is, no, nope, there's no real value there <laughs> that uh, you're kind of a little bit maybe a sucker. And even if you don't resent it, 
you know, even if you don't have anger over it, we, you, you know, you kind of made a bad call, kind of made yeah. a bad call. You could have had roads. So let's let's talk about uh, the suckers out there. Um, some of them have decided to file suit recently um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to to stop this plan. Um, can you talk a little bit about the lawsuit, um, one filed by the Pacific Legal Foundation um, to stop this plan from going forward? And and how do you sue over this if you're not, you know, if 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 you're not really in, it doesn't seem like you're really directly involved. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating civics lesson. This this policy is on a, on a number of fronts. So, civics lesson number one is the legal concept of standing. Okay, so that and it's kind of um you know if you're talking to uh, folks who don't think about the law very much, you kind of have a pretty linear thought process that says if something happens that's unlawful, somebody surely can sue to stop it, right? So if government does something and it's an executive order, it's a government policy and it violates the Constitution or it violates a statute, lawsuits happen. And it's completely understandable to think that because we've seen a ton of policies challenged in court successfully, both from the right and from the left. But but not every policy can be challenged in court um, to and, and certainly by not by every person or just any person you have to have standing and what that means is you have to be able to allege that you have suffered a concrete particularized injury by the policy the policy has harmed you and so the very first thing that a lot of people thought when the when the policy when um when the loan relief happened was who is actually hurt by it now, some of your listeners might go, me, I'm a taxpayer, $420 billion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But here's the catch. There is no such thing as just generalized taxpayer standing. Right. Just like if, by if being, it was, we'd have a lot more lawsuits. We'd have even more. You know, you could say I'm challenging the defense budget because I, you know, I'm a pacifist and I don't want, you know. So it has to be more than just I'm an American who's being a bad policy has cost me money. You have Subject to say to that, bad policy. Right. Right. You have to say this has cost me above and beyond the basic taxpayer burden we all bear. And at Pacific um, Legal has an attorney who, under the original iteration of the policy, um, was going to be automatically opted in to loan forgiveness. And if he was automatically opted in, he was going to then be taxed on the loan forgiveness. And so he was going to pay a specific state tax burden specific to him, not general taxpayer standing uh, because of the loan forgiveness that he didn't want. Right. Okay. So because why did he not want it? Because he was part of another loan program that was not taxed, where if you do a lot of work for public interest, you know, for nonprofits, you get uh, steady loan forgiveness over years. Lots of, you know, that that's a quite popular program nationally. So, um, he said, I'm going to pay money that I wouldn't ordinarily pay because of this. So oh, that's so that's good. That's specific. That's part he's got it. Honest, right. He's got it. But okay. there's a catch. Uh, the catch is the policy doesn't actually exist yet. So it's just a statement of here's what we intend to do. And the actual rule has not been finalized. So the Biden administration says, you know what? You can opt out of the automatic opt in. <laughs> well there that goes the, for everything these policies yeah, there goes there the standing but then then there were six 
states that filed, and I, I strongly recommend a post by Ilya Soman at um, the Volek Conspiracy. Ilya's a George Mason professor. And he says he thinks the states have got it because at least two of the states are also loan servicers. In other words, they're part of the loan program itself. They receive fees as a result of servicing a loan program. Now, the Biden administration kind of had a foresight on that as well because they eliminated a whole bunch of loans from the program that have private loan servicing. So, um, So they've been aiming, trying to get rid of standing. You know, they've just been moving sort of from thing to thing. And uh, but it looks like at least two of the states may have standing. So they in the door, probably. Yeah. Okay. so then that's just hurdle. Number one hurdle. Number two is can they prove it's unconstitutional or illegal, unlawful, uh, violates the relevant statutes? And there that's where the case is the strongest. Well, right. Quite does frankly, the president does the president have the power just to do this by by executive order, right? Without any right. congressional appropriation. Yes. Does it violate the stat? There, so he's he's relying on the Heroes Act, a post nine eleven act that was originally designed to help post nine eleven veterans, and but the language is pretty broad. It's the language itself is broader than just post nine eleven um, and war on terror uh, related emergencies. But the bottom line is that the president has to be able to tie whatever relief or alteration to an actual to an emergency. And now when the original COVID lockdowns were locking in and people were losing jobs at scale and there was a pause on loan payments, that was a tie between an emergency and some temporary relief. Okay. well, Biden has said. The pandemic is over. over. Right. We all know. <laughs> so now, technically, as a matter of law, him just saying pandemic over does not end the state of emergency that's been declared any more than Michael Scott saying, I declare bankruptcy, actually declares bankruptcy. But it's very relevant to this other issue, which is this. Just saying that there's an emergency and an emergency exists means whatever I say about student loans goes you have to tie the emergency to the relief. Well, wait a minute. We're through the lockdowns. The lockdowns are over. We've employed returned almost to the same level of employment that we were before the lockdowns. Very low unemployment. And guess who has the lowest unemployment rate of all? College graduates. Yep. So if you carefully read the Office for Legal Counsel opinion that, quote unquote, justified the um, loan relief, they kind of. Well, kind of isn't actually the word. They actually punt on the key. And this is the Biden administration OLC. They actually punt on the key question of is the the loan relief tied to the emergency? Does the emergency create the need for the loan relief? And there's a big punt there. And I just don't think the Biden administration is going to be able to prove that the emergency necessitates this relief. So then where does so then where do things actually stand then in terms of being implemented? So it's not being implemented yet. There are no final rules yet. Um, now, here's the last complicator. If if we could make this more complicated, let's just go ahead and make this as complicated as we can make it. We're going to get la- into the weeds. Yeah. The last complicator is, let's suppose a court says it's unlawful. What's the remedy? Okay. Now, this is where things get really controversial because 
for a long time, we've had something in place, um, both against from the right and from the left, called a nationwide injunction, where we say, you might be one plaintiff in my court challenging the application of this policy to you, but because it's unlawful as applied to you, it's going to be unlawful as applied to everybody. So we're just blocking the whole policy. And this is something that was very frustrating to the Obama administration when Republican judges do it. It's very frustrating to the Trump administration when Democrat appointed judges did it. And a bunch of judges are yelling at the Supreme Court, tell us what to do about nationwide injunctions. So this actually in, could end up being a case that is relevant to that issue. If if the court says, well, it's unlawful, but we're going to only grant the relief to the specific parties in front of the court versus declaring the whole thing unenforceable, then it's kind of a mess. But at the same time, traditionally, courts target relief only for the parties in front of it. So it's a it's a it's a big mess. And it's a sign of how you just can't leave it to the judiciary to protect statutes in the Constitution. Every branch of government has its own role. And when a presidential administration decides it's just going to do what it wants until the courts tell it otherwise, it puts a lot of strain on the system. I was wondering about when they first announced this policy and even when they were sort of talking about it on the campaign trail, it struck me, and maybe it's just my own kind of political blinders, as a policy that was not going to be very popular. Um, yeah. I mean, that that it, you know, it really did affect, you know, more, you know, is going to give this benefit to sort of more middle and upper class people. And, and that there were a lot of working class people who kind of understood, like, that they were getting the short end of the stick on this one. Um, I've, I've kind of been surprised just about the politics of it. I mean, is it just that there's kind of this halo over this idea that we're helping, you know, struggling kids or struggling young adults um, that has sort of pushed it through? Or, you know, can you talk a little bit about um, the sort of kind of student debt relief and kind of the popular imagination? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a difference between a popular policy and constituent service. Okay, mm -hmm. so young college educated voters are a core part of the Democratic base and sort of giving them goodies for their support and giving your your court your base goodies for their support is sort of a time honored political practice that can be really destructive ultimately if giving them goodies is not popular with the broader electorate right so i i think there's a couple things in play here one is look this is a giant financial gift to a key democratic constituency so from that standpoint, that key Democratic constituency feels satisfied that they voted for the right person. They don't have they have fewer regrets or any regrets at all. And maybe they'll turn out in the midterms. Maybe that's part of the calculus that they think midterms are more base turnout elections. We we gave our base something important. They're going to turn out for us. But even if it doesn't actually end up serving the population of people that that base says that they're normally so concerned about. Right. Well, the negative consequences are kind of down the road. The positive consequences are fr up front and immediate The the millions of people who will have 10,000, you know, a $10,000 essentially gift. Um, so that's immediate. And the negative consequences, as so often the case, as we all know, the negative yeah. consequences are kind of in the far in the medium, hazy, medium distance. And you don't think about them as much. But, you know, the other thing is. There's been a lot of people both on 
the right and the left who've been saying to both the Republican and Democratic parties, why don't you concentrate on things that are popular, that are consistent with your principles? I think David Shore on the left coined this term popularism. And from that standpoint, the loan relief kind of defies some of the principles of popularism, which is enact broadly popular from your menu of democratic policies that you advance, enact the ones that are broadly popular, focus on those. And similar to, you know, critique the Republican Party amongst those policies that are the menu that Republicans like focus on the ones that are broadly popular, kind of a common sense political rule. And from that standpoint, it feels like and it seems like um, that the the debt relief violates that rule. This is not a broadly popular uh, means of use of government power. It's a narrowly popular for a core democratic constituency. Yeah. The, the other thing that I was thinking about was, you know, um, you know, if you think about kind of using the tax code and um, and fiscal policy as a way to sort of reward behaviors that you want, like, for instance, the, you know, the public service loan forgiveness that you were talking right. about. This is a policy that, you know, what it rewards is something that I think a lot of us have concluded, like, maybe we need to stop incentivizing for everyone in the country, which is going to college or, you know, even just enrolling in college. This doesn't even reward college graduation. This is just rewarding, you know, the kind of mindless like, oh, I finished high school. I better go to college next, as opposed to kind of taking some time to think about what are the things that I'm most suited to that I'm going to enjoy and that are going to be you know, best for me in terms of making a living. And so I, I just also wonder whether that's, that's the sort of goal here too. It's not just relieving this debt, but signaling, Hey, we really love college for everyone. Right. No, I, I definitely think there is a, uh, a prioritization of college placed. If you're talking about $420 billion, how can you not call that a prioritization? And I do think that a sort of a, we need a more sharp, sharply targeted message, which includes, for example, trades, you know, we need try to get something done in the United States of America involving skilled trades. And you will immediately know that there is huge market opportunity there. But we're also telling an awful lot of people who would be really good at joining lucrative trades. We're going, we'll try an English major first. Well, no, (laughs) No, an awful lot of people don't need to be doing that. And so I do think that, you know, this this idea that $420 billion worth of college incentives landing on a culture that right now is misallocating talent in a pretty substantial way is, I, I agree with you, Naomi, I think it's got some longer term cultural negative effects. I mean, imagine if that money were invested differently. So I'm launching you know, a network of high schools that in high school, at the end of your sophomore year, you can choose a college pathway for your junior or senior year, or you can choose a careers pathway where you can do apprenticeships in like phlebotomy or construction or these areas that don't require a college degree, but, you know, can actually lead to a real living. And, And it doesn't mean it's, it's like an equal stature, right? So if you choose the college pathway, fine, but and it's not a step down if you choose this other way. And it doesn't mean never go to college. It just means maybe later, you know? Right. Well, and there, there are also programs where you can actually graduate from high school with an associate's degree simultaneously. Right. Early college high schools, right. Which is where you're actually, you know, an associate's degrees are often in 
professional categories where you can immediately go and get a work for a, a reasonably high wage right away with that skill that you learned and when you're getting the associate's degree, there's so much room for creativity here um, that when you say, here's $420 billion to, you know, as a, as a gift to everyone who made the college choice, um, I would what, prefer not to spend the $420 billion <laughs> at all, given our, inf <laughs> our inflation and our budgetary situation. But some subset of that towards more creativity, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's so hard not to be cynical, that it just does seem to be so political and just such a gift to a to a political base, not actually designed to help children. And I know that's right. a political thought. All right. <laughs> well, on that kind of depressing note, <laughs> we, we want to thank David French for joining us today. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. David, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, good stuff.